Hello my lovelies and welcome to another episode of Primed for Crime. I am your host Liv and I am very excited to have you here and hope you enjoy today's case. So today's case is about a young girl named Leanne Tiernan and she was a pupil at West Leeds High School and she was last seen alive at 4.50pm on November 26th 2000 when she and her friend 15 year old Sarah returned to Bramley by bus after shopping in Leeds city centre. Now before we get into the case I just want to state that everything I talk about today is just information I have found online and I mean no disrespect to anybody involved or mentioned. Today's case does involve quite a lot of mention of sexual assault and rape and especially on young girls as well. So if this is something that you're not comfortable listening to at the moment then please feel free to click out of this podcast. So let's begin. This is the murder of Leanne Tiernan. Leanne Tiernan was born on September 27th, 1984, and she lived in Leeds with her mum and her sister. Now, Leanne was described as a good student and she attended school at West Leeds High School. But sadly, there's not a lot of information about Leanne's life, but from home videos online, she seemed like she had a very happy and fun childhood. However, we do know that Leanne was last seen alive at 4.50pm on November 26th, 2000, when she and her friend, 15-year-old Sarah Whitehouse, returned to Bramley by bus after a shopping trip to Leeds City Centre. The girls parted company at Huffley Lane and Sarah last saw her setting off along an unlit path through an area of wooded wasteland known as Huffley Gill. Now when Sarah arrived home she telephoned Leanne's house and was surprised to find that she wasn't there yet. Now at 5.20pm Leanne's mother rang her mobile phone to find out where she was but the phone rang and rang for quite some time until it eventually cut off and when she rang it again it was cut off after four rings. So at 7pm she rang the police and immediately reported her daughter as a missing person. The police straight away began a missing person inquiry headed by Detective Superintendent Chris Gregg and a search of the area where Leanne was last seen was undertaken, although there was no trace of her to be found. It's simply like she had just disappeared off the face of the earth. Now as the inquiry progressed it became one of the largest ever undertaken by West Yorkshire Police involving up to 200 officers and hundreds of volunteers. More than 1,400 house-to-house inquiries were conducted and 800 houses along her probable route and this was designated by the police as quote the red route and this is where they searched. They searched, you know, sheds, garages, outbuildings and even 150 commercial premises within a half mile radius of Huffley Gill. 
There were DNA samples that were taken from 140 men interviewed by the police in connection with this inquiry and 12 search warrants were executed at various addresses in Leeds. So it seemed like the police were really really trying to get a build on this, get a grasp, just doing everything they possibly could because at the end of the day, this is a young girl that has just mysteriously vanished. No one knows what happened, but they are so determined to get this girl home safely. West Yorkshire Police Underwater Search Unit carried out a search of a three-mile section of the Leeds and Liverpool Canal between Spring Garden Lock and Bramley Falls, and two miles of which was drained to a depth of about one metre, which I'm assuming is to make it easier to search. It's shallow water. So the unit also searched 32 drain shafts in the area and Yorkshire Water were even called in to help locate disused and abandoned drains and wells. They even went as far as, you know, like collection of bins, like household waste, were halted temporarily to allow the police to search through all the bins in that area for evidence. You know, this was a huge search effort and they received assistance from a lot of people like the British Waterways, the Transport Police, um, Calder Valley Search and Rescue, Interpol and even the Police National Search Centre which is a joint police and military training facility. Everybody was just in 100% with this search. So on December 3rd, 2000, the police even decided to stage like a reconstruction of the girls' last movements. So this was reenacted by Sarah Whitehouse and Leanne's older sister, Michelle. And this was, you know, in hope of jogging the memory of maybe potential witnesses about Leanne's movements. The detectives also sent text messages to Leanne's mobile phone, which was now at this point switched off, but had been briefly activated on the 27th of November, which is a day after she went missing. A local businessman actually offered a £10,000 reward for information leading to her safe return, and the supermarket chain Iceland printed her picture and details on milk cartons, and these were sold um, in stores nationwide, so they were trying to get the message out there. And I think this is actually something that um, people used to do back in, I don't want to say the olden days, but obviously it's not as common now, but putting missing people's pictures and details on milk cartons was a known thing back at this point. And as for sightings, there were unconfirmed reports of sightings as far away as Doncaster and Blackpool, but after nine months, there had been no positive sightings. Leanne's boyfriend, care assistant Wayne Keeley, aged 19, pleaded with her to get in touch. On the 4th of December 2000, police received an e-fit facial composite of a man who had been seen walking a dog in the Huffley Gill area shortly before Leanne had disappeared. He was described as being about 5-8 inches tall and kind of like a stocky build with a round reddish face that may possibly have been scarred. It also said that he was wearing a black woolen hat and a three-quarter length waterproof jacket and dirty jeans. On the 20th of August 2001, 
Leanne's body was found by a man named Mark Bison, who was walking his two dogs in Lindley Woods, which is North Yorkshire. However, the weird part about this is 100 yards away was where they found another murder victim years before, Yvonne Fitt, who had been discovered buried in 1992. Leanne was identified from her fingerprints on the 22nd and Deputy Superintendent Greg announced that the inquiry had now become a murder investigation, codenamed Operation Conifer. Leanne's body had been wrapped inside nine green plastic bin bags secured with twine, with a black bin bag secured around her head with a leather dog collar, which was then placed inside a floral patterned duvet cover. Leanne's coat and black boots were not found, but there were plastic cable ties that had been used as like a ligature to basically strangle her, and there were more ties that had been used to bind her hands together. A dark coloured scarf was also wrapped around her neck and her hair was still tied in a ponytail with the same band and hair clips that she had been wearing when she disappeared. The state of decomposition of Leanne's body led some forensic experts to believe that after her death she had been kept in a cold storage or freezer up until a few weeks before her body had been found. And this might have been to try and avoid detection and in part as maybe a trophy because, you know, some, some killers do that. Now, an expert was called in to examine the microstructure of Leanne's cardiac tissue and concluded that the body could have been kept frozen for some time, taking into account the air temperatures for the months between her disappearance and the discovery of her body. The police made a public appeal for anyone who might have been in Lindley Woods recently or had information about others who regularly visited the area to come forward and contact the police. And this is when we are introduced to a man named John Taylor. John Taylor was a parcel delivery worker for Parcel Force and he actually lived on the same housing estate as Leanne within a mile of where she was last seen. He was known locally as, quote, the pet man, end quote, as he kept a number of dogs and ferrets and sold pet food, and was also known to be a poacher. His only previous conviction was for theft of a suit when he was just 15 years old, and he was considered by his neighbours to be trustworthy and rather ordinary. Following the appeal for information, Taylor's name was given to the police separately by two former girlfriends of Taylor who had met him through Lonely Hearts columns and they both said that he had driven past the woods in their company and boasted of poaching there regularly. So obviously police are going to look into this guy. It could be something, it could just be girlfriends, you know, ex-girlfriends trying to get him involved. But the fact that them, two of them separately said this to police, you know, best to, I guess, check it out, see if there is any truth in this. So the police began to conduct a thorough um, kind of inquiry into Taylor's background and they soon discovered that he was a frequent user of Lonely Hearts advertisements. 
and through his telephone records they identified the women who he had contacted in this way and they began to interview them individually. Now one woman who had dated Taylor disclosed that Taylor told her that he liked tying women up and locking them in cupboards, which a little bit weird. Another said that Taylor told her that he had a fetish for bondage, whips and ties and said that he wanted to tie her daughter up with cable ties and have sexual intercourse with her. Which honestly, if anybody said that about my daughter, I, I would probably be in jail. You know, that is just, I mean, bondage, fair enough, but saying that about someone's daughter, I mean, I don't know how old this daughter was, but even so, that is just creepy. No, thank you. Now, there was another former girlfriend who had briefly lived with Taylor, and she told police that she had often visited Lindley Woods with him whilst they were dating, and... She eventually broke off the relationship with him because of his bondage fetish and the feeling that she was, quote, being raped. You know, that's, like I said before, bondage, fair enough, if that's what you're into and, you know, the partner consents and is comfortable with, you know, stuff like that, then absolutely go ahead. But the fact that she felt like she was being raped, just, I can't imagine what trauma she must have been going through you know I hope she's okay because stuff like that can be it can be really traumatic um so obviously there is definitely something off with this guy you know not good and when asked by police um to describe how Taylor would tie her up she described his practice of securing plastic cable ties around each of her wrists, then tying her hands behind her back, using a third cable tie to kind of link them. And this is exactly how the other women also said Taylor enjoyed bondage during sex and would like bound their breasts and their hands with cable ties. So all of these um, interviews, all these women's stories all seem to be saying the same thing. They all are linked, you know, they're all telling the same sort of thing. So this guy's definitely on police radar. However, it wasn't just these interviews that led investigators to look at Taylor. There was also a lot of forensic evidence linking Taylor to Leanne's murder, and I'm going to go through each of them now. First off, there was the leather dog collar found on Leanne's body, and this was manufactured by a company based in Nottingham who sold it to 220 separate wholesalers. Detective Constable David Wilson began contacting each of them to ask if they had any records of sale to anybody in the Leeds area. The 112th company contacted was a Liverpool-based mail-order company called Pets Pyjamas, who confirmed that they had made three sales in the area and emailed a list to DC Wilson. Taylor's name was one of the customers and this was immediately flagged up for attention as the name previously provided following the appeal by Detective Superintendent Greg. Scientists at the Forensic Science Service examined the scarf which had been tied around Leanne's neck and found a hair caught in the knot which did not belong to her. 
The forensic science service were unable to extract a DNA profile from the hair's root using conventional DNA tests, so they carried out um, a mitochondrial DNA testing with the shaft of the hair, and this did provide a DNA profile which did match Taylor's. They also examined the twine and that showed that it was of a unique type only manufactured by a company in Devon and they usually only supplied products to the Ministry of Defence but a small kind of one-off batch had been sold to the public for use as rabbit catch nets and this batch was an exact match for the twine used on Leanne's body and also subsequently found at Taylor's home. There was also yellow cable ties found on Leanne's body and they were identified as being manufactured by an Italian company who sold 99% of them to the Royal Mail, of which Taylor's employer, Parcel Force, kind of used. There were the same cable ties found in Taylor's home when it was searched by the police. The pieces of green plastic identical to that which had been used to wrap the body were found at Taylor's home. Traces of red nylon carpet fibres were found on Leanne's clothing, which the FSS described as very distinctive due to the unusual way in which the fibre had been dyed. When the police searched Taylor's home, they discovered that he had recently removed all carpeting from the house and burnt it, but small traces of fibres matching those on the body were caught um, on nails in the floorboards. So, again, it's in his house. (laughs) The FSS employed an expert in forensic pollen analysis who were able to demonstrate that Leanne had been in Taylor's garden just before she was killed based on the distinctive types of pollen found in her nasal cavity, on her skin and in her hair. Which is absolutely phenomenal if you think about it. I did not, I honestly did not even know that they could do that. See now, after all this evidence, every lead that they possibly have, every piece of evidence is just pointing towards Taylor. So, you know, fingers crossed they can convict him of this crime. So Taylor, who lived alone after his wife had divorced him in 1996, was arrested on suspicion of murder on the 16th of October 2001. The police immediately sealed off his house and gardens and a patch of wasteland to the rear of the property. The gardens were then excavated and the property, including three large chest freezers, subjected to a rigorous examination over a period of 10 days. When interviewed by police, Taylor eventually admitted to kidnapping Leanne. His explanation was that he had not visited Harley Gill for many years, but by chance he had been there for one afternoon, and that was the afternoon that Leanne went missing. He said that she had walked past him and on impulse he had just seized her from behind and tied her hands behind her back with a dog leash whilst covering her head with his jacket and forced her to walk to his home in nearby Cockshot Drive. Which is crazy to me. I mean, I hate walking down the street sometimes. I mean, luckily, growing up, I lived in a very small village so I didn't feel scared to kind of walk home from the pub or whatever but 
you know, I, I don't think I'd dare do it now, especially not on my own, because you just never know, you know, especially when you're walking past people, it's late at night, and the fact that he had just impulsively decided that he was just going to take her just really makes my skin crawl. You just need to be so careful and so vigilant. It's ap- And this was, you know, 20, 22 years ago, which, you know, I can't even imagine to think, honestly. He then forced her into his bedroom and onto the bed where, during a struggle, she had actually fallen off the bed, hitting her head on the floor. He said that he had then picked her up by the scarf around her neck and that was the point that she had died. He claimed that her death was an accident and then that he panicked and hid her body in Lindley Woods, which honestly, I'm not too sure about that. I am not sure that he is telling the whole truth there, but this is what he said to the police. The police and prosecution maintained that he cable-tied her hands behind her back in the bedroom in preparation to basically rape her, and then used a cable tie as ligature to murder her when her blindfold slipped and she saw his face. When asked why he had abducted Leanne, he replied that, He just had no idea. He just did it. And when police challenged his version of taking the body to Lindley Woods soon after the murder, he claimed that he had first kept the body hidden underneath pallets in his back garden and then stored her inside his sofa. So nothing about a fridge, but even so, if you... Right. If you had accidentally murdered somebody, just so happened to accidentally murder somebody... The last thing you would do is try and hide that body. You would try and save them. You would call 999 or 911. You would do absolutely everything you could to try and save that person. But his first instinct was to just hide her body. But, ugh, I don't know. You just would, wouldn't you? On the 15th of February, 2002... Taylor appeared before Mr Justice Poole at the Leeds Crown Court and entered a plea of guilty with respect to the abduction of Leanne Tiernan. He was not asked to enter a plea on the charge of murder, pending a separate hearing, and was remanded into custody awaiting the trial. On the 8th of July in the same year, the first day of the trial, he did enter a plea of guilty with respect to the murder of Leanne. He was sentenced the same day and Mr Justice Astill said, quote, After the death of this girl at your hands, you wanted sexual deviancy with a girl of similar age. That not only demonstrates how dangerous you are, but demonstrates your lack of remorse. Not by chance were you in this area for this purpose. You were not acting on impulse. You chose a secluded place and a vulnerable young girl who suited your purposes. This was as cold and calculating as can be imagined, and you are a dangerous sexual sadist. Your purpose in kidnapping this young girl was so that you could satisfy your perverted cravings, the suffering you caused her and the suffering you continue to cause by those who loved her simply cannot be measured. You must expect to spend the rest of your life in custody." 
Taylor was sentenced to the mandatory term of life imprisonment. However, his sentence was later set as a minimum of 20 years by the Lord Wolfe, then presiding as the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales, meaning that Taylor is not among the prisoners who have been issued with a whole life tariff and who are unlikely ever to be released. Until November 2002, the Home Secretary had been responsible for deciding when or if a life sentence prisoner could be considered for parole. But a legal challenge by another convicted murderer resulted in the judiciary being given full responsibility for making these decisions. At the conclusion of the trial, Deputy Superintendent Gregg announced, quote, We do not believe that this is the first major crime he has committed. We feel that the way this murder was pre-planned and the way he hid and disposed of the body was calculated. We cannot exclude the possibility he has killed before. End quote. And he would be correct. So as the police now had Taylor's DNA profile, they were able to review other unsolved sex attacks in the locality where forensic evidence was still available for DNA extraction. And two rapes in particular stood out as they had both been committed on the estate where Taylor lived. The first took place on 18th of October 1988 when a 32-year-old woman was attacked as she walked across Huffley Gill to collect her children from school. Taylor, who was wearing a masked mask and an armed with a knife, forced her to carry out oral sex and then raped her, which is so sad. Honest, I really do not like these cases, if I'm really honest with you. Um, the second rape took place on the 1st of March 1989, when Taylor, again masked and had a knife, broke into the home of a 21-year-old woman in the middle of the day. He forced her into the bedroom where he undressed her, blindfolded and gagged her, and then forced her to commit oral sex before raping her. And the worst thing about this one is that her small children were present in the house at the time. Which, it really, it scares me. I mean, I'd like to think that I live in quite a nice area. The estate I live on is a relatively nice estate, but I do know that if I kind of go two minutes down the road, it's quite a rough area. And it does worry me quite a lot when I'm home alone that something like this could happen. Like, I'm always on edge if you know if a car pulls outside I'm at the window like I'm such a curtain twitcher honestly and you know making sure the doors are locked making sure that I've got an escape route like these are things that we shouldn't have to think about but we do which is sad you know she was at home with her children and this horrible horrible man broke into her home you know, the place where you're meant to feel the most safe, which, um, yeah, it's really not nice to think about. Taylor was formally rearrested in October 2002 and charged with these rapes. And although Taylor initially refused to cooperate with the police, the DNA evidence was so overwhelming and he eventually pleaded guilty to both rapes on the 4th of February 2003 at Leeds Crown Court. 
Judge Norman Jones QC, the recorder of Leeds, sentenced him to two terms of life imprisonment and, quote, expressly disapplied early release provisions, end quote. Deputy Superintendent Gregg said, quote, We are still concerned that there may be other victims and families who have been affected by Taylor's actions, end quote. And he revealed what a diamond, uh, sorry, he revealed that a diamante necklace found in his car at the time of his 2001 arrest may have belonged to another victim as they were still unable to find out where it had come from or who it belonged to. Now, Taylor is known to have travelled across the country to meet women he had contacted through personal ads and also in his parcel delivery work. And with solving with the solving of the two rape cases, police discounted his insistence that Leanne's murder was an isolated case and that he had just, you know, taken his dog for a walk and snapped. You know, they maintained that Taylor could have been a serial sex attacker for almost twenty years. Taylor's denied, you know, involvement in any other crimes. However, on the 26th of October 2018, he was sentenced to a whole life order um, for a series of other rapes and sexual assaults. Under the Criminal Justice Act 2003, Taylor's sentence for the murder of Leanne has... Um, been reviewed by the High Court of Justice with regard to the minimum term served before consideration for parole. So on the 19th of December 2006, Mr Justice Openshaw set the minimum term at 30 years. In his judgment, he stated, quote, I am anxious that this sentence is not misunderstood or misreported. The sentence is and remains a sentence of imprisonment for life. The defendant may not even be considered for release for this offence of murder until he has served at least 30 years. That is not to say that he will then be released for the whole life term imposed for the rapes remains in force. Furthermore, the defendant will be detained unless and until the parole board is satisfied that he no longer presents a risk to the public. Many prisoners, and surely John Taylor is likely to be one, are in fact detained for many years after their tariff has expired. Indeed, it may be that he presents such a risk that he could never be safely released. But that is for others to decide in due course. I am just anxious that no one thinks that I am suggesting that he will be released in 30 years, for I most certainly am not." End quote. And to this day, Taylor is imprisoned at the HM prison in Wakefield, um, which hopefully he will stay there for the rest of his life. And that does conclude today's episode. It's um, one of those cases that really makes me mad that there are people out there like this. And, you know, I'm reading about this stuff every day, like it's absorbed into my brain you know like I'm constantly reading about cases and you know sometimes you do just kind of switch off and you know when I'm reading about it but when you actually sit back and think especially with this being so close to home it really does kind of 
it just gets you thinking that how many people are out there that have intentions like this obviously there's a lot unfortunately there's a lot but you know like if you're walking and you see a person could that person do something like this or has this person done something like this before you just never really know and I think that's the scariest part and the fact that there are probably so many more victims out there who don't have the justice that they deserve is really heartbreaking and my heart really does go out to Leanne's family and friends and everybody that's affected by this disgusting man but fingers crossed he will stay in prison until he rots um if there are any more updates in this case I will be absolutely certain to let you know. So that is the end of today's episode. If you are craving some more true crime you can head over to the Primed for Crime TikTok where I post small snippets of cases daily. I'm also doing a mini series at the moment on serial killers which is really interesting. Um, It's getting quite a lot of popularity, people seem to like it, so I'm going to carry on and maybe do some more. Um, So go and check that out if you haven't already, give me a like and a follow. Also be sure to follow on here and even leave a review if you are, I've just realised I actually don't have any reviews, which sounds really bad, so if you do enjoy these episodes then... I'm not begging, but you know, if you feel, you know, feel free to leave a review. Um... So yeah, I will probably see you for the mini episode on Thursday. (laughs) See you later.